Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, October 24th. The storyline we are monitoring above all else this week in the pro tennis world is the race for the ATP Tour Finals. We have two 500-level events that are going a to go a long way to determining the outcome of what that final eight field will look like. Of course, on yesterday's show, we previewed the draws in Vienna, in Basel, broke down who has the best opportunities this week to make one final push for those year-end championships. But as promised on today's show, what I want to do for all of you listeners is break down the case for each of our players remaining at least most Pressingly in that race for the year-end finals. I'm going to run you through the cases for the players currently ranked 5 through 13 in the points race, tell you all where I think each of them should sit given the seasons they've produced this year. I also do want to bring some attention to one of my favorite events that, I'll be honest, I forgot was returning to the calendar this year, but now is officially underway. Not 1 through 8, but 9 through 16 is that elite trophy race in Zhuhai. It's just, it's a sneaky fun event. Dare I say the consolation tournament of all consolation tournaments we have on the calendar. And look, it's the end of the year. We're all looking for any tennis to watch. Certainly, we've got some of the best players in the world competing in Zhuhai. So I want to offer some thoughts on that event on today's show as well. And I could think of no better guest to help talk through all of those topics than the man joining me on the podcast today. Of course, that's because he's a returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast, essentially a co-host of this mini break show. And let me tell you, as we shift into off-season mode, you should prepare to hear more and more of him. But perhaps most pressingly, he's here today to announce his long shot candidacy to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. That's because he's the majority whip of all of our problems here, the head of the Crack Rackets Problem Caucus, Problem Solvers Caucus. It's our dear friend, David Kane. DK, I'm going to leave in the stuttering at the end because I still feel proud about that intro. How are you doing today, my friend? Majority whip. I got to add that to my grinder profile. Thank you for the the endorsement. That was the joke I was going to make is there's no one I feel more confident in enjoying the title of majority whip than you. (laughs) We need to add that to the soundboard. Yeah, exactly. That's that's you're right. That's how you and Westoff interact. For all I know, Um, but no, it's it's a lot more than that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Again, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And look. 
It's late October. We've got year-end tennis. We're moving back to indoor hard courts in Europe on the men's side, obviously, last few weeks of the women's season. Before we get into the tour finals, before we get into Zhuhai, are there any things I'm missing that you're monitoring down the home stretch? I know before we started this podcast, you mentioned the continuing Simona Halep saga. What's on your mind as we approach the season's end? I did. I did mention the uh, the Simona Halep appeal or plans to appeal or reported plans to appeal. I went to uh, the Simona Halep Instagram amid those reports to see if Halep had made herself any direct announcement about an appeal that she certainly seemed poised to make just by virtue of the vehemence of her protestations of innocence. But I did not find any such statement. Instead, I just found another picture or video rather of Simona practicing. <laughs> to to go to Simona's Instagram is to really go to an alternate timeline, one in which she is still very much preparing to play her very next tournament just around the corner and not perhaps in four plus years. But um, yeah, it'll be an interesting um, a legal adventure to see whether uh, Simone is able to get one or both. I think, it would, and I th- do believe it would have to be both charges uh, in terms of the anti-doping program breaches that she would need to have overturned in order to continue playing or get back on tour anytime soon. But um, if you've read that 126-page decision, it definitely seems like an uphill battle uh, legally speaking. So I think all eyes on that. But I don't. I think we 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 hope we not. We know we are hoping for the best and expecting perhaps more of the same. Yeah, it's been a fascinating saga, certainly. And yes, you know, again, prior to that release of, you mentioned, what was it, 130-page report, there really wasn't much communication from the WTA side, from the anti-doping side of things, of what precisely occurred. But is it fair to characterize that report as devastating to Halep? I mean, I know, I don't know if you've read all 130 pages, but I know you've certainly gleaned through it. Is it fair to say they made a convincing case that she is guilty? I have not read the full thing from start to finish, but I did listen to a competing podcast, which discussed the the decision in some depth. And I will say that it is, was again, it a remarkable. If it's Ben's, you can say it. It was, it was Ben's. Yes, yeah, it okay. was no challenges remaining. Um, I mean, it's just a remarkable jump or difference from previous, you know, anti-doping cases when, in which it is often quite um, explicitly stated that there was no intentional um, effort to get an unfair advantage. And that was not the case with the Halep uh, decision. They were quite um, damning in the fact that they felt they believed this was a fairly sophisticated, long-term effort to Get an, get an unfair advantage, to say the least, and uh, something that was done long term. And I think we still haven't really scratched the surface of what all of that implies, whether that's from Simona to her team to everything else that seemed to um, all come together at the same time that the timeline that the the ITIA was outlining. But um, I, and I don't know when we're going to have that conversation. I think tennis is very much largely moved on. You know, we haven't, I don't think m- m- many people have spoken about Simona since the decision was handed down. That was a, a few days of reaction. I think we pretty much wanted to turn the page on that one. And I don't know the fact that Simona is continuing to keep herself in the news with her continued appeals may force the issue, but um, not super optimistic. We get too deep because I think it's just, it's a, it's a house of cards to say the least. You have mentioned, or you mentioned it there we have to some extent moved on. It has become an afterthought. And look, there have been storylines that have captured the attention of everyone. You have first time slam champions, Von Drusseva at Wimbledon, obviously, and then golf winning in New York. 
it is crazy how fast we have moved on from a player who was the world number one player and was pretty decisively the best player in the world heading into the pandemic start of 2020 coming off of her run to the semifinals in Australia where, yeah, she probably should have won that semifinal match, obviously didn't. But man, to see, you're right, like how quickly Simona Halep how quickly the tennis body seems to have moved on collectively from this story. It's why she has perhaps felt the pressure to speak loudly in her own defense, because right now there hasn't been, there haven't been a ton of voices that have rushed out to defend her. For sure. I mean, I think it's not just the, one of the best players in the world heading into the pandemic was seen as one of the best players in the world coming out of the pandemic. Had a pretty I mean, good 2022 too. Yeah was working her way back, but even, you know, coming out that 2020, 2021 streak, you, you think back to that 2020 U.S. Open that Simona, yeah. you know, chose not to play um, because she was concerned about the coronavirus. It certainly would have been her best opportunity to win a U.S. Open title, was playing so well on hard courts earlier that year. <laughs> and it would have been even more um, shocking, you know, uh, reaction that now a three-time Grand Slam champion, someone who just won a slam, you know, two years ago is, is, is found at... And then at that same tournament two years later is found. But then you also wonder how things would have been different if she had won that third slam sooner. What would have, would she have retired? Would she have not changed her team around? You know, there are all kinds of what ifs that we can be playing um, at this at this point. Someone, and I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get the real answer into what happened there. It's a fascinating storyline, one to keep in mind, but let's focus back on what's going on on court right now, and again, what I wanted to have you on the show to discuss today is, let's make the case, what should the ATP Tour Finals field looks like? We've got two weeks of tennis left, and yes, Vienna, Basel, Paris, given the thin margins in the points race, they will ultimately be fairly determinative in who ultimately makes this field or rounds out the final eight, but you know, again, we'll also talk with Zhuhai a little later. Let's start there, and let's start with what it actually looks like. Again, what does the points race look like at this moment? Who has secured their spots? And, you know, break that down for listeners who haven't been following it particularly closely. Already securing their spot at the Tour Finals. Djokovic, makes sense. Three slam titles this season. The fact that he's only 500 points ahead of Alcaraz in the points race remains remarkable, given, again, three slam titles and a final at that fourth slam for Djokovic this year. But he's won. Alcaraz is the next. Makes sense. He won Wimbledon, won all sorts of other things as well, has flirted with a 90% win percentage all year long. Medvedev clinching his spot, punctuated, of course, by that U.S. Open final mark, but he might have clinched his spot in February, March alone with how successful he was in the Middle East and during the Sunshine Swing. Last but certainly not least, Yannick Sinner clinching his spot. 500-level title in Beijing. He beats Alcaraz. He beats Medvedev. Obviously, he won the Canada title in the summer as well. Those are the four players that have clinched their spots. Those four should be in the field, right? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We don't need to run through the stats. If you're making a list of the five best players in the world, regardless of who's five, those four have to be four of the five names. They certainly should be there. I start. I worry a little bit as to whether we will see all four of those players in Turin, given the sort of mounting number of injuries that are coming out of the Carlos Alcaraz camp. And... He pulled the plug on last year. We didn't see him at the ATP finals. And I'm starting to feel a little bit, you know, concerned that if things go a certain way, we may not see him 
at the finals again, which would really be a big knock on this tournament to, you know, as it is, it feels like, yes, four have already qualified, but you're really only interested perhaps in the top three. And if one of those three are not there, then, and the rest are kind of just getting into the finals by the skin of their teeth where, you know, thinking about this as a prestigious event, you know, where this really falls in terms of um, whether it matters anymore, I think is, is starting to become a question for me because it's just, I don't, what is the appeal necessarily if it's not, if, if those top three are not there, I don't know. It's going to be a weird one. It's already going to be a weird one. So we're getting into it early. This is good. I couldn't disagree with you more. I think the the uncertainty surrounding particularly the back half of the eight who will qualify for this field, that's what makes it so fascinating. Who are the best players in the world right now? I want to see all of these guys go head-to-head. And yes, there are some lingering injury concerns for Alcaraz. I do also wonder for a Novak Djokovic, nothing to prove at this event. Absolutely nothing. And I don't say that as a knock. That's the ultimate compliment. There's nothing Novak Djokovic gains from winning this event other than just winning this event and reminding everyone, hey, I'm Novak Djokovic. But he already did that three times this season, of course, punctuated by that U.S. Open title. But for Sinner, after just beating Alcaraz and Medvedev in Beijing to maybe get a look at those two guys again, you beat them twice now in the final month of the season. Talk about momentum going into Australia for any of the guys five through 13 who we're going to talk about. If you secure a final, one of these final four spots, get yourself into the semifinals of this event. Now you go into Australia as well saying, you know what? I'm the guy. Like, I should be on this tier with these other players because the the rest of the field hasn't done anything notable to stand out above me. Like, this is your chance. Uh, this is this is that final run and that we're going to see these guys go head-to-head. I mean, look, we're going to get into all of these numbers in a little bit here on, on our show, but I broke it all down. Quarterfinals, semifinals, slam results, record at the Masters, top 50 wins, more importantly, top 20 and top 10 wins. How few of these guys ranked 5 through 13 in these points race have 5 or more, not just top 10 wins, but how few of them have 5 or more top 20 wins on this season? Like, they all need this. They need this run. They need these reps against the best of the best in an event with heightened importance. No, it's not a slam, but it's the tour finals. And you are with your peers with a window for every player in their mind to make a leap above the rest of the field. And that's why I couldn't value this ATP tour finals more because this is finally a full generational, I mean, outside of Djokovic, but the full generational shift is on. It's not Djokovic and Nadal and a Roberto Bautista Agut, or and a Pablo Carreño Busta snuck in. No, no, no. It's Djokovic and the Next Gen Plus. We haven't gotten that at a, at a Tour Finals in the truest sense. We get that this year. We've gotten Djokovic and the Next Gen Plus. At, I mean, are you thinking of, of, thinking of like, it was very, it was definitely like Djokovic and then a huge age gap. It was like very much all guys in their mid-20s and Djokovic. You're right, but I but, guess that it's a year later. It's like everyone's had a, sorry, go ahead, please. Uh, I didn't mean now to I got two up. things. First of all, I wanted to just point out the fact that when the WTA has gone down to the wire, and usually it's just like the last two, one to two spots, it is, oh my God, the tour is so weak. The fact that they don't even have their field put together, the fact that Joe Conta is in the iconic photo and then has to be yanked out when Svetlana Kuznetsova qualifies under the wire. 
there. The fact that we do not know, I mean, granted, yes, there is at least one more Masters tournament to go before the, the year-end championships for the men. So perhaps it is meant to be a bit more of a race. But the fact that even dear sweet Andre Rublev has yet to qualify officially is a little weird. And second of all, I do bump on the idea that this has of late been a title that is something that gives the player momentum going into the next season. I mean, you look at Grigor Dimitrov winning in 2018, the two times Zverev has won, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, yes, Medvedev won a slam the following year, but it took him pretty much the whole year to do it. This is not necessarily, this is not a Caroline Wozniacki situation where players are winning or making the semis or final of, of the year in championships and then going into Australia as the one to beat. It's been a title. It's been a great title for them. And for a lot of these players that I just listed, it may, may be the best title of their career and something that'll be the on the first paragraph of their uh, retirement obit, as it were. But I, I do question whether, you know, even if Yannick Sinner were to win this title, uh, you know, depending on how he wins it, perhaps if he does beat, if he beats Djokovic and beats Medvedev and beats some combination of the three to win the title, then yes, you might want to look at him as one to watch in Australia. But this is by no means a guaranteed momentum boost for anyone outside of Djokovic. Djokovic is the only one that's gone on to win the next slam uh, since Djokovic. Ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> since Djokovic yeah. in 2015. I mean, it wasn't Murray in 2017 uh, either. So must be I mean, said. <laughs> I understand your point. Uh, you know, again, it's funny because we had the next-gen finals boost where Chung and Tsitsipas and all these guys would go in the next year to do great things. And again, ATP Tour finals is a little bit different, although some of that you just do wonder how much of that is clouded by the fact that Novak Djokovic is Novak Djokovic in Australia, and he's winning that event no matter what the rest of the field does going in. I went back and looked at the fields. 19 had Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, and team, then a bunch of next-gen guys. 2020, Djokovic, Nadal, team, bunch of next-gen guys, and Schwartzman. 2021 field, you're right. That's the one where we saw Djokovic and, you know, then a bunch of next-gen guys. And ultimately, I think Sinner, Nori replaced Tsitsipas and Berrettini, who had to withdraw. But that was all the 1995 or younger crew. And last year, you had Djokovic and Nadal, but then all next-gen guys. So this is the third iteration, I suppose, of that composition of a field. But again, everyone's a little older. Like Medvedev Zverev, you're 26, 27 now. You're not the young guns in this event. You're the guys in your prime. Tsitsipas as well are supposed to be, you know, again, winning this and competing at this event every year. And by the way, there is something to be said for Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, who have all qualified for this field now five plus consecutive years. Love a participation trophy. Congratulations. (laughs) Yes, Zverev's won it twice. I'm just being sassy. I'm saying there's something to the fact historically If you're a top eight player for six years consecutively, I'm not saying you're a Hall of Famer, but at the minimum bar criteria of like to get into the conversation, to get into that bar where that talk is happening, you got to make the next gen finals for the majority of the prime of your career. And even if the slam titles are the regular finals. Uh, the, the, sorry, the regular finals, tour finals. Thank you for the majority of your career. And these guys. I want since are... the next gen finals. I want, yeah, exactly. I want a thirty something to show. Does he the beat Shelton or Fee uh, at the thirty something? That's funny. Um, you have to you have to do it, and then if you don't win it, you have to retire. It's... Anyways, I think this finals matters. I do because I need to see these guys beat one another, and ultimately that's what they have to do to get to the Slam finals to even face off against the Djokovic. And again, just. I haven't seen enough of these guys consistently, you know, outside of maybe Medvedev this year on hard courts. 
it's been a toss-up who's going to beat who on any given surface at any given event. And so I want to see these top guys of their class go head-to-head. And look, again, right now, Rublev, after his win today, he's 65 points away from qualifying for the ATP Tour Finals. Two wins away. He's going to get there. He's pretty much in. Tsitsipas, about 670 points off that mark. He's in sixth. I think that's where the real race starts because after Tsitsipas, Zverev trails by 255 points. Behind Zverev, 340 points is Holger Runa in eighth. So those three guys, Tsitsipas, Zverev, Runa, they hold your final three spots. The big delta, of course, Zverev to Runa, 340 points. Why is that significant? Because Holger Runa is holding on for dear life. Holgaruna in eighth place right now, 55 points ahead of Taylor Fritz in ninth. 55 points. That's that's one match, folks. I don't know how else to say it. Kasparud right now, 400 points behind Holgaruna, but he's playing a 500-level event this week in Basel. There's still Paris on the board as well. If he can go semis, quarters at those two events, Runa continues to falter. There's a pathway there for Root. Hubi Hercots, he's about, doing quick math in my head, I promise, folks. Let's see, 185 plus 110, that's 295 points behind Holger Runa. Again, we're on indoor hard courts. Hubi's going to be okay. He's five points behind Kasparud. Same pathway exists for him. I'd go all the way down to Tommy Paul and Alex Diemenauer at 12 and 13, respectively. They're just over 500 points behind Holger Runa, but again, and I looked at Tommy's draw in particular this week at Vienna. A semifinal pathway is absolutely there. Paris looming in the background. Both Paul, Demonauer, top 10 guys in hardcourt wins this year. Holger's really faltered. I said this race is really 5-13 to 13 deep. That's the pool I'm picking from. I mean, the most notable part, as you look at the race, DK, before we get into these individual cases here... Holger has really let, fumbled the bag. Like there was a moment where he was pretty definitively four or five in the world, especially coming out of the clay courts, quarters, RG. I forget if it was Madrid or Rome, but that in the Monte Carlo finals. And I mean, now he is holding on for dear life. I think it's important to clarify the fact that I was very excited about the ATP finals that you were describing a few months ago, because I think that ATP finals included Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, perhaps a sinner, a Holger Runa. And that to me starts to seem like a really good mix of, you know, the current, the present, the, the past, the future, all of that all combined. And the fact that we may potentially have an ATP finals field without either Alcaraz or Holger Rune. I mean, you talk about, you know, Fritz trailing uh, Rune by about a match, which is about as many matches as Rune has won since July. I mean, like it's been, it's been, it has been Mladenovician, you know, if, if those remember um, Christina Mladenovic, you know, having the great first six months of the season that she had seemingly in pole position to qualify for the WTA finals, barely wins a match from July to the end of the year, and then ends up somehow getting into the top 10 at one point. <laughs> and I recall being very upset that the WTA did not do more to celebrate her top 10 accession because it was sort of just because of the way that the points had fallen. She didn't, she didn't win a match to get into the top 10 and then ultimately fell out after Zhuhai, a uh, foreshadowing there. But um, yeah, it's, that's been brutal for him because he's someone who I certainly would have wanted to see competing in this field at his best. I don't know if I want to see him competing right now, given the way that he's been playing. That might just be a needless, 
Owen three um, round robin hit that I don't know if anybody needs that, although Coco Golf got it last year and now she's a Grand Slam champion. So maybe it's a bit of a baptism by fire. But, um, you know, he was what? Wasn't he number five in the race yeah. for a very long time? I mean, he that's might have just even been four. And, and for, yeah, very possibly after, after the Rome. Monte Carlo Rome. Yeah, back to back and then quarters yeah. at RG. And look, him stumbling down the back half of the season, very much injury related, has to be pointed out. That's what's made this race wide open. And look, let's get into the cases now for the final spots. And rather than go by the race rankings, because if you want to know what the points race rankings look like, you want to do the math yourself, you can do that by looking at the numbers. I want to give you my list. What I think the top eight should look like, how I would rank these players five through 13 right now. Here come the stats. No, what the stats say. We'll mix in some vibes as well, DK, because I know you love yourself some of those. We'll let you no majority, stats, just vibes. We'll let you majority <laughs> whip my vibes into shape. Um, <laughs> let's start with number five, and we can go through this one quickly. And again, we're not, I promise this will be under an hour podcast with Zhuhai included, DK. I probably should have told you that before the show began, but we'll see if I live up to my word, listeners. And you already know Ju- the answer to that. When they go Zhulo... Oh, here we go. We go you high. That's, there he is. You're welcome. Thank, thanks, this, this thanks is, Michelle. This is what you tune in for, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Obama, <laughs> everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, vote for him, Speaker of the House. Um, anyways, Andre Rupp. <laughs> I almost made a Tom. I, I almost got into it there. You know, I've been learning the U.S. Senate recently because this is what I do with my spare time. I was struggling with the Rogers. Roger Wicker, Roger Marshall. Do you know where those two are? Come on, you know this. Are, they, are these Congress people? These are senators. Oh, I can man. name all 100 now. <laughs> I'm on my game. Mike Crapo, let me tell you about him. Jim Rich, um, Pete Ricketts, let me t- Cynthia Lummis. There's a Senator Lummis. We don't talk about Senator Lummis. These are U.S. Senators. <laughs> There's a Senator Lummis. This is what I'm saying. Like, there is someone in college who, I don't know how it happened, but they started describing good things as hummus. And bad things as Lummis. And there's a Senator Lummis. And like, I just like, to me, again, childhood me, I'm very mature. That's hilarious. Shout out Cynthia Lummis. Where is she a senator of? You have one guess and then we'll get into the case. I promise. Oh, man. Senator Lummis. You want to know her her co-senator is John Barrasso. Oh, I kind of know that name. He's one of the Johns in in Senate Republican leadership. Toon, Cornyn, and him. John Toon's the handsome one. Brasso, I think, is the doctor, and Cornyn is Texas. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's so it's not I Texas. Know. I, I'm, I right. don't even Wyoming want to guess. Wyoming is the answer. Uh, shout oh, out well, Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anyways. an indictment on the fact that Wyoming has two senators. No well, offense to our Wyoming <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I was like, well, they can't be a Democrat because I would have gotten a fundraiser email from them by now. I would have known that name. <laughs> Tammy Baldwin always up in my inbox okay. being like, the time is now. I'm like, yeah. I want you to know, <laughs> I kept missing one Democrat from the caucus when I kept going through. I couldn't figure out the second Democratic senator from New Mexico. Shout out Ben Ray Lugin. That one was obvious. Um, but I could not remember Mark Heinrich for the life of me. And now I remember Mark Heinrich because my da- I told this to my daddy. Like, you don't remember Mark Heinrich? I was like, you don't know anything about Mark Heinrich. Like, get out of here. Don't, like, judge me. Like, what do you mean you don't know Mark Heinrich? I was like, shut up. Anyways, here's my final question to you before we start. Do we leave that segment in? Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> all right. You heard the rule. I listen to it on 2x speed anyway. It's all good. All right. Number five, Andre Rublev is where we'll start. Currently ranked five, fifth in the points race, 
fifth in ELO rating as well. Don't worry. I'm not going to go through every metric for Andre, but for what it's worth compared to guys 5 through 13 on this list, who, again, it's Rublev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Fritz, Runa, Demonauer, Hercots, Paul, and Rude. Those are the guys 5 through 13 in the race. He's got his—he's tied with Fritz for the most wins at 51. He's tied for the most quarterfinals, 10 of them. He's 6-0 and in semifinals this year, DK. That's not too shabby. Like, again, where have they come? We can discuss that. But 6-0 is not something to knock the brow at. So, to be clear, Rublev and Fritz have won the most ATP matches this year. Of this list, yes, correct. 51. Oh, oh of, the, of the players of, ranked of five outside the top 13. four. Yeah, oh, yeah, because okay, the top right. four are in. That's what I meant. Top four are in. We're done with it. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. Like, where are we no. going with this? <laughs> yeah, no, we're done with them. They're in. They're done. They've clinched their case. We're through with them. Okay. I'm saying of the rest of the guys, because that's who these four spots are up for grabs yes. between. Rublev's got as many wins as, went, as any. 6-0 in semis. Two titles, one of them coming at the Masters level. 18 wins at Masters overall, by the way, at 18 and 7. That's the most of the list. 28 top 50 wins, most of the list. 11 top 20 wins, most of the list. Uh, he's the f- he's the fifth guy. Like, there's just not a conversation to be had. And by the way, slams three quarterfinals, losses to Djokovic, Djokovic, Medvedev. And then, yes, round three loss to Sinego at Roland Garros. But I'll let that slide. I think it's been a good year for Andre Rublev. He probably comes in in the B plus A minus range. Well, I mean, so, so far, I mean, first of all, I should, I should note, I have the Wikipedia race up, which is very instructive because <laughs> I'm quite visual and color coded. I like the fact that I can see the greens and the purples. Once you get past Yannick Sinner, it's a lot of blue, which means like <laughs> sub quarterfinal results. But I will say, other than Hubert Hercats, who won uh, Shanghai just a few weeks ago, Andre Rublev's the only one with a green and that sort of top tier tally of slams, masters, results. All of the rest have been hoarded by your your Djokovic, Novaks, your Alcaraz's Carlos, your Medvedev's Daniel, and your Sinner's Yannick. I mean, that's <laughs> Thanks, Yoda. a testament to the fact that um, that Rublev has been one of the best players in a year where there have been four really, really good players in 2023. So I, I certainly think he deserves to be there. I hope he thinks he deserves to be there. I think that always seems to be the the crux and the issue with Andre Rublev is, is where is his self-belief at? You know, you one would have hoped that that Monte Carlo win would have been a greater launch pad than it has kind of ended up being. But, you know, I think for the fact that he's he is 26, we're all getting old. I mean, I mean, but mentally and to watch him, you still feel like he has the bearing of a 22, 23 year old guy. And so you feel like that that he may just be a couple of years still behind mentally and you hope that. In the future, he's able to kind of compete better with these top guys. And one more, to your point, one more, you know, bite of the apple, one more ATP finals. Maybe it's just another opportunity for him to to find that belief. Is he the modern day Ferrer? Maybe Ferrer point nine, just like always in the mix, but never not quite there. Because again, do you know this is fourth straight tour finals? 20, 21, 22, 23, assuming he qualifies, which I think he will. That's pretty good. Like, he's made it age 22, 23, uh, 24, and 25 seasons. Like, that's heading into your prime. He has proven, I'm a top eight guy. Like, that's the floor. Now, is there more ceiling left? That's a discussion. But, like, if this is your floor heading into your prime, you're feeling good if you're Rublev. Sort of what do you value? Because I I would argue that Ferreira's had a better career, but is much more forgettable, well, sure. whereas I feel like that Rublev has not had as good of a career as he probably should have, but is probably almost universally beloved on the ATP tour. I think even among his fellow players, among fans, 
people really like him. And I think that they're also they're all rooting for him collectively to have this big breakout result. And so I I don't know if the Ferrero to me has like sort of he's almost maybe the Sangha. Like I think because people love Sangha. I think that's maybe a bit more of a an equivalent I, there. Ferrero seems kind of like an insult. Ferrero's a little like a cult hero as well. Like only one man has a story about running ten miles while ripping cigarettes. And that's the David Ferrer we all know and love in spirit, even if none of that is actually true. I feel like a very specific dork loves yeah, David that's, that's You're right. You're, like it's definitely it's someone take. who's like, it's you don't take. know about David yep. Ferrer. He's like, he's really take. underrated. It's, it's like, great take. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> is that your best Gill impression right there? I don't because... know. Uh, no, I, I did. To be honest, he was in the back of my head because I'm like, oh, God, has Gill defended David W. Ferrer? But he did say nice things about Amber Glenn in our group text over the weekend. So it's all is forgiven. True. By the way, this is so silly. But just to put the final thought on the politics thread, you know, the speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry. You know, with his, you with see, his bow, with but, the bow tie. But did you see Jared Moskowitz, congressman from I'm not sure where, who goes out and goes when he was named pro tem, he goes big day for short people, because uh, or for short men, because like him and McHenry are not the tallest. Um, and, and I wanted to send you the clip, and I forgot, but I just remembered. So shout out to me and my fellow short king Gilbert Gross. Again, oh. this is why you guys are launching your candidacy for Speaker of the House. No. Is this the best year of Rublev's career? It's a serious conversation to have. He's four wins away from surpassing the most wins he's ever earned in a single season. Again, did he make a semifinal? I would say yes. Final? I mean, yeah, he made a it, Masters one. He won a Masters yeah. title. That was the big knock on him. He finally did it. This is by far his best, you know. And he got to become better friends with Grigor, Grigor Dimitrov. So that's yeah. also a really, it's a pretty big accomplishment, I would say. So I'm just give his year an A minus. Love them. I'm a, yeah, I'm going A minus with his season. All right, he's five on the list, and again, he's under 100 points away from qualifying. I'm pretty sure he's going to get there. Six on my list is Alex Zverev, and again, we've had this debate every time you're on the show, so we can do this one quickly. Zverev, 10 in the rankings, 7 in the points race, 6 in ELO ratings right now. For what it's worth, he now 50 wins this year, 50 and 24 overall, 10 quarterfinals, same as Rublev. He's made eight semifinals for what it's worth. Two titles this year, Hamburg, Chengdu. He made semifinals, Roland Garros, quarterfinals, U.S. Open, 13 and 8 of the Masters, 20 and 15 against the top 50, not great. 6 and 11 against the top 20, not great, but obviously much better down the back half of the year. I mean, again, we're, we're now we're in debate category, but I, I don't think anyone else on the list, and we'll get to their metrics. I can't tell, tell you a Tsitsipas, a Rude, who, yes, both made slam finals. They haven't had better start-to-finish seasons than Alex Zverev. What I will say is, of this often sad list of potential ATP finals uh, candidates. No one carries the narrative momentum right now of an Alexander Zverev. Everyone has been talking about how this has been a resurgent season for him, that he is the one that is, you know, where Runa is flagging, where Sitsipas is middling, where Rublev is combusting. You know, it seems like even if there's been some hiccups along the way, Zverev is ticking his way back up the rankings, mainly because he has no points to defend. But okay. the fact that he's been doing that has been a testament to him. Although I will say, looking at this Wikipedia, a lot of blue for Alexander Zverev. I mean, I really thought that, he, you know, obviously he's had some really good results, but they've been in the they're in the best other category. They're not really in the slam slash masters category, obviously, of the French Open semi, the the Shanghai, uh, rather the Cincinnati semi and the um, the, the US Beijing final. But and the Beijing and Hamburg are his two best results, probably. And they're both five yes, hundreds. So exactly. to your point, you're like, you don't see yeah. it. I, I yes, agree. you don't see it. So like to look at it in that way, it's a bit more stark where you feel like he's had this amazing year and yet he's only number seven. And that's sort of why he's 
maxed out at the smaller tournaments, whereas some at some of the bigger tournaments, he hasn't really shown up um, outside of those three. But, you know, do I put him, do I rate him ahead of Sitsipas right now? Yes, because he's just, Zerev is winning more matches. And I feel like Sitsipas really has not been who he sh- was shaping up to be at the start of the year, doubles title with his brother, notwithstanding last week. More wins, more top 50, more total wins, more top 50 wins, more top 10 wins, uh, more titles, more quarterfinals, more semifinals. And yeah, you know, again, better down the home stretch at the slams, Zverev over Tsitsipas. Now, you look at Zverev compared to some of the other guys on this list, his early season struggles mean he has less top 20 wins than a Taylor Fritz. He has less top 20 wins than a Hulk Aruna. But I agree with you, recent form and you know, the momentum he has accumulated beating Sinner at the U.S. Open in particular as well. I think Zverev has to be number seven on this list. So that's where he slides in for me. And again, Your Yannick Sinner. <laughs> yeah, okay, seven. What I will point. also add, and I feel like is important to add, is that once, if in fact Zverev does qualify, he's a pretty major threat here. Not only has he won yeah. this tournament twice, he's won the Olympics. You know, best of three in this kind of format has been very favorable to him over the years. You know, I think perhaps best of five against your Djokovic's and your Medvedev's and even your Kasper Rudes have been more difficult. And so I think that he's coming into this not only with a lot of momentum, should he qualify, he will be a sizable threat to the title, especially if Alcaraz is not there. Yeah. And this is look where it starts to get concerning for Rublev 11 and eight against the top 20, four and four against the top 10, 28 and 13 against the top 50. The numbers start to get grim for all these players moving forward. For Zerev, 20 and 15 against the top 50, not great. 6 and 11 against the top 20, not great. 2 and 11 against the top 10, not great either. That said, you compare that to number seven, Stefano Tsitsipas, which is where we're going to go next. I mean, talk about limping in to this ATP Tour Finals. He's going to get in because he made the Australian Open final. That's the result that holds everything else up. He's seven in the rankings, six in the points race, 10th in ELO rating right now. He's 43 and 20 overall on the year. Yes, that's a 68% win percentage. But, you know, again, that 68% win percentage is lower than it's been in each of his last four seasons. And look, in a vacuum, it's been a fine year for him. Eight quarters, five semis, won a title in Los Cabos, two finals, including a slam at the Australian Open. He's number two in hold percentage overall. He's two on hard courts, three on clay, and two on grass courts, I believe, by hold percentage. But the same issues linger. The break percentage. He's 11th on clay courts. He's 32nd on hard courts. He's 43rd on grass courts by break percentage amongst top 50 players. He's 0-5, DK, against top 10 opponents this season. Went 12-8 and at Masters events this year. By other people's standards, yeah, it was probably a top eight season for Stefano Tsitsipas. By his standards, I can't, like, are his serve and forehand still elite? Yes, but they've been elite for three years now. I don't know that he got measurably better at anything this season. And, you know, best case scenario, you give him, what, a B, B minus on the year? He's in my seventh spot. What do you think? I mean, I think everything you need to know about Sitsipas' season is that any headlines that Sefanos has taken this year have largely been about him and Paolo Bedosa. I mean, sure. for someone with a lot of like main character energy, this has been sort of a non-event year for him on the court. It sort of just feels like he's been injured. And don't we remember in Miami, he had that whole spiel about how he didn't want to withdraw because he thought he'd, he'd get banned from competing in Monte Carlo. It was like a whole long drawn out story. And it just felt like a bit of a 
misinformation train of, you know, the idea that as if the ATP was going to really suspend him, if he was that injured and couldn't play Miami, that they wouldn't let him play Monte Carlo because that was his most, um, his highest point total from Masters 1000s in the last year. It just felt like gobbledygook. And he just hasn't really found his footing. I mean, he yes, he won those Cabos and then he went to the US Open where he's historically underperformed and underperformed. Um, you know, the fall swing, you know, indoors, you think that perhaps would be a, a decent swing for him hasn't been phenomenal and, you know, is going to be one of those players who I think if you're a top guy, you want in your group because <laughs> that feels like that'll be, you know, a potential win for you there. Um, an opportunity, you know, one more opportunity to make the semifinal. I don't, I don't see him as being in the driver's seat uh, in the top eight if he gets there, well, even so- though he's won the title before. Here's the question is, why does he get that seven spot? Because every counting stats for, for Taylor Fritz is better. He has more wins, more quarters, more semis, more titles. Now, Tsitsipas was better at the slams than Fritz, but they both make one quarterfinal. The difference being, of course, Tsitsipas has a final on top of that as well. But Fritz was better at the Masters, more top 50 wins, more top 10 wins. Same thing, you look for Holger Runa, more quarters, more semis, same title count, but more finals. Um or excuse me, same title and finals count. Runa probably more consistent at the majors than Tsitsipas was this season. Uh, you know, more top 10 wins than Tsitsipas this season as well. Counting stats for Demon Hour, honestly, a little bit better than Tsitsipas as well. The big thing that Tsitsipas has holding him up is, again, he made the Australian Open final, which feels like it which was Which is about a third ago. of his points. Yeah, but that's that's everything. And so I ask you, is that result in a vacuum enough? Or not, I, I guess, in the context of everything else this season, that singular result, does that, in your mind, propel him above a Fritz, above a Rude, above all these other guys? Like, does that plus the totality of just enough get him into the top eight for you? I mean, I, as someone who does tend to prioritize big slam results, generally I would say yes. Although you may recall, I wasn't super impressed or blown away by this run to the final from Sitsipas when it was happening. I mean, we were thinking that he was so much farther ahead than Medvedev and Rublev, and boy, has Medvedev blown him out of the water since since that uh, that time of the year. And so, I mean, in terms of reputation, in terms of pedigree, in terms of potential, Sitsipas makes more sense than even a Taylor Fritz, uh, perhaps even more than a, and then a Casper Ruud. I mean, Casper Ruud's season has been so up and down, and. Fritz has just been so middling. You know, I think the the underperformance against Djokovic at the U.S. Open is really a big sting. You know, the fact that he really didn't make more of a match of it. No one said he had to beat him, but the fact that it really wasn't close. You know, I think that's that's one of those moments where it could have elevated his sort of perception, the idea that he should he should really be there, and he could still be there. He's number nine. He could certainly surpass Rune, and someone else could withdraw, and he'll make it in anyway. He'll he'll pull the Sakari route into uh, the ATP Finals yet. So I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for Fritz. I wouldn't feel that he's robbed just yet. But again, we're really we're really splitting hairs in terms of who's had the better season because really only four people have had good to great seasons. Rublev has had a, a solid season. A good season. I would say Rublev's had a good season. I would say a fine season. He's had a fine season. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> look. Why I put Tsitsipas at seven, he was one of the five best players in the world during the clay court season once again. And, you know, again, did he get the big title? No, but finals Barcelona, quarters Monte Carlo. What surface is the ATP finals on? 
Well, I understand that, but this is a year-end race. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, his prospects for the tournament. I'm saying, you sure, know, again, fair, totality, fair, fair. Yeah, totality of what the, he's the done. The totality. Yeah, exactly. There was a moment where he flirted with that level in a way, all due respect to Fritz, as good as he's been from start to finish this year, consistent as he's been much more so than a Tsitsipas or a Runa, whatever. I think Tsitsipas's ceiling between how good he was on clay court plus that Australian Open final run, it was just higher this year than the rest of the list. And again, when we're picking between thin margins between these players, I'm going to use that factor to give Tsitsipas that final bump into this seventh spot, even if, again, he is limping in. Because he did get a Los Cabos title, so you throw that in there. There is something. I I mean, to compare Fritz and Tsitsipas more closely, I mean, you have, you know, Tsitsipas made the quarters of both Monte Carlo, Madrid, made the semis of of Rome, whereas Fritz made the quarterfinals of Indian Wells, Miami, made the semifinals of Monte Carlo. Those are identical stats to me. I mean, yes, maybe... You want to say all four? And then he did make the. Um, well, I have the numbers. Oh, he made the here. Semifinal- oh, Fritz made the semifinals in Rome too. Well, so he, so so here are the numbers. He wasn't able to count the points. What, what what was the deal with that? Well, the reason I want to bring this up because Fritz is eight on my list, and okay. to some extent, Taylor Fritz has had a Daria Kasatkina season, and what I mean by that is totality. Ouch. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, thirteen quarterfinals. It's tied for the most with anyone. This year, he's been he's played a lot, but he's won a lot. He's 51 and 22 again, matches Rublev for the most wins of the guys five through 13 on this list. Two titles, yes, they were 250s, Delray in Atlanta, but when he's playing those lower level events, he's having success at them. You mentioned with Tsitsipas here, the direct head to heads record at the Masters, Tsitsipas 12 and 8, Fritz 16 and 8. Tsitsipas's record against top 50, 19 and 14, Fritz 22 and 13. Against the top 20, Tsitsipas 9 and 8, Fritz 7 and 7. Against the top 10, Tsitsipas 0 and 5, Fritz 3 and 4. Now, again, what did I not bring up there? The slam results. Fritz's were worse. I, they both had one quarterfinal. The problem is Fritz's quarterfinal in the U.S. was his only second week appearance for Tsitsipas. Yes, he struggled, but even in those struggles, he made the second week at three out of the four. Of course, capital uh, punctuated by that final or not punctuated, capital letter to start the sentence uh, at the Australian Open for him at the slams. I mean, that's the only difference. Like, again, I said the numbers there. The only difference between these two is Tsitsipas was better at the slams. Fritz was more consistent everywhere else. I think it's telling you, look at the ELO ratings right now. Fritz is 9, Tsitsipas is 10. They haven't had dissimilar seasons. I give Tsitsipas the edge because, again, he was a little bit better at the slams. But I throw Fritz into that 8 spot because the consistency he had, in my mind, actually does surpass what Holger Runa did. And Holger Runa was bad enough down the second half of the season compared to Tsitsipas, who was just good enough, that the totality of Fritz slides him in at eight, and I have Runa at number nine. I will shut up now and stop interrupting you. I'm curious what you think of that seven, eight, nine run. I mean, I didn't process a ton of that because I was just imagining <laughs> you looking into Taylor Fritz's dead eyes and saying that his season was reminiscent of Adaria Kasakina, just like <laughs> sort of like the wave, like try to process all that that meant to him. And like, because okay. I'm sure that Taylor Fritz fancy, I'm sure Netflix breakpoint star Taylor Fritz fancies himself a little bit <laughs> on a higher plane than uh, than Adaria, than, than esteemed Fair. YouTuber uh, Daria Kasakina. Fair. And that's just hilarious to me. Although I guess the, the number, the math does math. It's just very funny yeah. to put them in the same. Um, but, but you Put do agree the, the math the math does math though? 
Yeah, I mean, I think again, I feel like people talk about Fritz in a more elevated way. So even if okay. maybe they've achieved similar results, we were conditioned to think about Taylor Fritz on a higher level. Although perhaps, like you said, when you actually look at the the results, it's not that different. Um, with that said, um, yeah, I mean, it's and and Fritz has been good when he's been at the ATP Finals. He's been he's played pretty well. So I'd, he certainly would be, I would imagine, a decent factor. And this would be, you know one more opportunity for him as well to prove himself against these top guys. I mean, he's someone who's really, really yet to do that at a tournament that really matters. Yeah. I, I mean, again, quarterfinals of the U S open was nice, but you mentioned it earlier, how he lost that match to Djokovic was tough and kind of negates it. Yeah. And look, three and four against the top 10 is better than CT pass was this season. But when I think about Taylor Fritz, I just think about every week, quarterfinals, you'd always see Fritz in that draw, wherever the event was happening across the globe. And that's a credit to him. He's young. He's 26 years old. Go chase points. Go chase a year-end finals, an opportunity to get in on your own merits. And again, he is 55 points away from surpassing Runa, and he has all the momentum comparatively to Runa in this race. So... I do think Taylor Fritz is the total. He's had a good seat. What, what grade do you give him as we wrap up this Fritz thought? What, what would you give him on the scale? B plus? Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, if you gave Rublev an A minus, I guess he yeah. would be a, a B plus, a B. I mean, I think if he qualifies for this event and has a good Vienna Paris run to sneak in in points over Runa, I think that's an A minus. I mean, how many times is Taylor Fritz going to be a top eight player in the world? But like, all these this A's is for no reason. <laughs> no. First of all, I'm not giving A's. I'm giving A minus. Very, very generous. Very generous grader over there. Well, don't the, you uh, have to grade the on the academy? Cur- don't you have to grade on the curve of if you can't give every? Well, I guess you could give everyone a B. Like uh, again, someone's going to be top eight, and by virtue of being top eight, didn't it doesn't Taylor Fritz have to think? You know what? I made a quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. I got into the tour finals. This year was a win. I mean, I guess because the way I think of it, you've had like three A plus seasons, A to A plus, perhaps. Maybe if you don't want to give Medvedev the A plus because he didn't win a slam, fine. And then then Sinner, I would also give A A minus. Yeah. And then. Rublev, A minus, B plus, Sitsipas, B plus, or rather B, B minus, you know, Zverev, a, a B. Yeah. I feel like with poor Holger Runa, we're, we're flirting with a C plus, B minus at this point. Is it so with, <laughs> with all of them ahead of Fritz, it's hard to give Fritz an A minus. I mean, maybe relative to what we thought he was Fair. capable of last year. I mean, maybe, maybe we're going to give the American men a collective A minus for their efforts, yeah. but I don't um That's I fair. Don't know. I agree. Totality of B pluses curve the American men to an A minus. That's fine. We can give Fritz <laughs> a B plus. He's my eight. Runa's my nine. Look, Runa's best this year was better than Taylor Fritz's. He was one of the five best players in the world during the clay court season. And you look for Runa, six in the ranking, eight in the points race, 12th right now in ELO ratings, 38 and 20 overall, eight quarters, six semis, wins a title in Munich, two other finals. Was pretty good at the slams before the U.S. Open. Round four AO, quarters Roland Garros, Wimbledon. Obviously the round one loss at the U.S. Open goes 12 and eight at the Masters. Four and six against the top 10. That four top 10 wins, that's top half of this list of guys, five through 13, who, again, are starving for top 10 victories. The break percentage fell apart down the season's home stretch, but obviously there were some serious injury issues. Now, we've had this discussion before, so I'll be brief. I think Runa accomplished everything he needed to this season. Was he healthy down the home stretch? No. Did he show me a top five ceiling in a way? That backed up his Paris results from the end of last year. Absolutely. His first six months were stellar. And given his age to be in the competition for this race, even if it doesn't ultimately bear fruition, like keep in mind, Runa 
Elkarez and Musetti could all go play the next-gen finals this year if they wanted to. Now, they won't, but they could. And that's just a oh, fascinating— Oh, Holger should definitely play the next-gen finals oh, What if Elkarez just goes—Elkarez is like, I want to play Ben and Arthur Fee because I haven't seen enough of them yet, and I think I might face them in the future. Like, that happens in figure skating sometimes. There'll be like so. someone who's been competing on the seniors but is still old enough to compete and she'll, they'll go back. And it's like yeah. always a big di- a big roll of the dice because if they don't win, it's like, oh, my God, how embarrassing. But it's you don't see that, obviously, in tennis, although I, morbidly I would love to see it because it'd yeah. be fast. I feel like Runa has a better shot of winning the next-gen finals than he does it even qualifying for the ATP finals at this point. Yeah. And so, again, Holger Runa, ninth on my list. Your grade for his season, is that too low or too high? It's hard with Hogaruna because it's so it's tragic because <laughs> when we look at where I thought of him after Paris, what was sort of like mildly disappointing of a season for me, just because he put himself in so many winning positions. I mean, he was up. He should have won that Monte Carlo title. I mean, he was up, what, 4-1 in the third against yeah. against Andre Rublev before he you know, blew that one. And then um, we had the opportunity against Casper Ruud in the quarterfinals of Roland Garros after winning that long five setter. In the fourth round, you feel like, okay, this is his chance. And he just didn't show up at that match and didn't really show up a ton against Alcaraz at Wimbledon. And then, uh, but, and, but to, to compare what to that, to what he's experienced in the three months since then, you feel like, whew, what, what I wouldn't give if you were Holger Rune for, you know, a, a choky Masters final or, you know, a slightly underwhelming Grand Slam quarterfinal. I mean, those were, you know, champagne dreams at this point. So I, it's, it's a bummer because you just feel like he was obviously Carlos Alcaraz has set just has set such an impossibly high bar than anything short of that. You feel like, meh, I've seen Alcaraz do it. So it's like, you don't have that same appreciation and you hope that Olga Runa and similar to the way to, to Stefano Tsitsipas, like these guys, if they're not healthy, don't play. You know, that's one thing about Alcaraz. He When he wasn't healthy, he didn't play and he didn't come back till he was healthy and he ran the table when he came back. So, I mean, there is some wisdom in taking time off. I thought we learned that lesson collectively back in 2017, 2016 when Federer, Djokovic and all of them, like they all took like half of the season off and they came back the next year, most of them, you know, feeling refreshed and better. And I don't know if these young guys have learned that lesson yet. It may, it may take another year of disappointments to really figure that one out. Yeah, I mean, look again, it's just he's just been so it's so tangible. It's just so obvious to the eye test that he is not playing nearly with the fluidity, the movement, the physicality he was in the first six months of the season. And still, again, I saw a ceiling from him in a way that I needed to see backed up given the scale of his Paris results to start the uh, to end last season. And so, again, I give it a B. B plus, like it would lean B plus if he does sneak his way into the tour finals. But B, just given how the year ended, still I'm fine with Holger's season. The last player who I want to make a serious case for, and again, we've got four guys left on the list. Hubi Hercots coming off of that Shanghai title. He's 11 in the points race. Tommy Paul, 12 in the points race. Casper Ruud right now actually sitting at 10th in the points race. None of them is the last guy I want to discuss, DK. The last guy I want to discuss, you knew I was headed here. I've been setting this up all season long. Alex Demonauer is the last guy I want to make a legitimate case for. When looking and that's at the, the break. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why. 13th in the rankings, 13 in the points race, 11th in ELO. 41 and 23 overall in this year. 10 quarterfinals. 10. 10 quarterfinals, DK. Again, that's up there with Zverev. That's up there with Rublev. That's up there with Fritz. In fact, it only trails Fritz on this list. He's got as many as anyone else on here. 
Four different semis. He's 4-0 in those semis. Wins a title in Acapulco. Makes a Canada final. Here's the big number for you. Alex Diemenauer's played 13 matches against top 10 opponents. How many has he won this year? Five. Six and seven. Do you know those six top 10 wins are more than any other player we've discussed so far today? It's more than Rublev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Fritz, Runa, Paul, Hercots, Rude. More than any of them. And I went and checked. They didn't all come in Canada. He got two of them in Canada over Fritz, over Medvedev. But he's six and seven against top 10 opponents this year. Eight and eight at the Masters, that's not great, but he did make a Masters final. Now, again, the slam results, his best results, round four losses in Australia to Djokovic, New York to Medvedev, second round losses, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, respectively. I agree. It's not great. But in a year where we're arguing about Bs, like, this is, first of all, as close as Alex Diemenauer may get to to a tour finals in his career, 24 years old. I'm just saying, like, you can't write this one. It, more top 10 wins than the rest of the group, DK. Like, he has done what the rest of them could not. Now, again, he couldn't beat Medvedev, Djokovic on hard courts at those major events. But I think you can come out of this season saying Alex Diemenauer might be one of the five best hard court players in the world. Like, certainly in the discussion, certainly one of the 10 best, right? Like, you come out of it thinking, obviously, the top four, but is anyone definitively better than Demon Hour on the surface. You guys can't see the face DK's making at me. He's laughing, not into the mic, which would have made for better content. Um, but, yeah. I just feel like, you know, we are, first of all, we're over an hour into this podcast. No, so we're 56 gas, minutes. That's, 56 that's minutes. That's gaslight number one. Well, we started a little before that. So that is, <laughs> I, I'm counting when we first jumped on. Okay. So we're a little over an hour into this podcast process. We want to be specific. Yeah. It's gaslight number two to try to tell me that it wasn't an hour. Gaslight <laughs> number three to tell me that this elite, this field of eight that is so consequential and means so much, uh... would it include Alex Demonar? <laughs> I mean, sometimes... You, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes Alex just likes to say crazy things to me, and he thinks because he can list these stats and at rapid fire speed that I'm just going to go, yeah, you're right. He is one of the top ten. First of all, if he's one of the top ten best hardcore players, top ever five or, in hardcore right wins, now, top five in hardcore wins this year. Yeah, well, he's a top twenty. He's a top twenty player. He should be top ten. That <laughs> aren't most top twenty players in the top ten in hardcourts. I mean, that's just that's just a, a bare minimum of being a top 10, 20 player on a tour where, yeah. I don't know, 65% of the tournaments are on hard courts. Did he beat him at the slam where it counted? No. I mean, like this, is, this goes back to the start of the year where we were just playing, I don't know, mental gymnastics, playing AU fanfic. Oh. What if the world was just totally different? And what if Alcaraz was this much worse and Demon Hour was this much better and so-and-so wasn't there and this one retired and this one came back? What Wouldn't Demon Hour then be in top eight? I, you should just, just press pause, just fast forward. You know, maybe you want to listen to this because this is entertaining for you. But this is certainly more entertaining than what I just had to bear witness to. But I mean, <laughs> listen, in a field of meh, I, I would, if, if Demon Hour manages, I mean, he would have to win Paris, right? First of all, I guess the, I guess that would make him a top five hardcore player if he had to win the Masters to do it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the disrespect to my boyfriend, Tommy Paul. It's just really astronomical. <laughs> that you bring me on this podcast to talk about 
whether Alex Demonar is one of the top 10 best hardcore players. I'm just saying the numbers make a fun case for Alex Demonar. Those 41 wins, by the way, on the year, that's more than hide behind those. Don't hide behind those numbers. You're standing your truth. You want to see Alex No. You want to see him in the top eight. You want to see him in Turin. I think he's one of the 10 best hardcore players in the world. I think the physicality he possesses, the improvement on the first serve, I just think you have to be elite to beat him on hard courts. Indoors, outdoors, it doesn't matter. You have to be elite to beat him. And to quote you, this is an indoor hard court event. And look, Hercots with his – look, Diebenauer's broken 29.2% of the time this year. That's a top five number. You see that in every matchup. Don't get with those numbers. No, he just – he takes away what you want to do best. Now, again, the Sinners, the Medvedevs, the Djokovic's of the world, they have another gear to them. And again, I'm not saying he's one of the 10 best players in the world on clay courts. I'm saying he's certainly one of the 10 best players in the world on hard courts. I'm just saying, like, again – Who's had a more memorable season, Demon Hour or Hercots? In your mind, you're going to say neither. Um, I can already what? foresee. Look, I'm overshadowing Casper well, no, Ruud. By the way, Casper's thirteenth on would, my list. I would say between Hercots and Demon Hour, Demon Hour, but only because I feel like I've been subjected to more Demon Hour content. I don't know if that's because of if if we took again, we're going to play mental gymnastics here. If I wasn't ever on this podcast, oh, would I be true. more aware of Demon Hour than than, than otherwise? Maybe. But um, I will also add that right now, as we are recording this podcast, that is now over an hour, I'm certain. Paul Garuna came back from a set down to beat Miramir Kekmanovic in, where the hell are they, Basel. Basel yeah. So that that gives him an extra 35 points, brings his total up to 31.45 in the live rankings, increases his his lead over number nine, Taylor Fritz, to just under 100 points. So <laughs> perhaps this will all be moot. But yes, there is a, there is a... There is a case to be made. It is a case. There is a that case. I will make. Um, by the way, 59-52 is where we are at as of this moment. Um, fine. To rapid fire through the rest, and it'll be very rapid. Oh, the rest. <laughs> no. Hercots, the best of the has, rest. Hercots has come on strong. He's top five and hold percentage. 17-17 and 17 at the Masters. Has been really good in the final third. Like, played Alcaraz three sets in Canada. Played Alcaraz three sets in Cincy. Yes, had a bad loss at the U.S. Open. Comes back. Wins the Shanghai Masters. He has rebounded in what was otherwise a forgettable season. Rebounded his season back into the B range. Tommy Paul... Career year, 45-26, and 26, 10 quarters, 5 semis, 3 finals, no titles, but did make a semi in Australia. 3-11 and 11 against the top 20, 2-7 and 7 against the top 10 is grim, but everyone's record against those opponents seems to be grim this year, except for the top 4. Still in the mix, though, 500 points down. And then Casper is just Tsitsipas light. Like, that's what his season is. He has a slam final at Roland Garros, round 2 exits at the other 3. One title, two finals, seven quarters. He's 14th in ELO rating right now. He's one top 10 win, two top 20 wins, 10 and 8 at the Masters. Like, those are the other candidates. Again, none of them have had higher than, ah, uh, Tommy, you could talk me into having an A- minus season, given his expectations coming in. But, like, that's The gaslighting continues, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, We're just we going to really downplay these people but just to really up the demon hour shot. Well, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know, five to seven guys. No, like Tom, but Tommy and demon hour have very, no, Casper is to Tsitsipas what Tommy is to demon hour. Like it's very similar cases for the two. I think demon hour is the slightly stronger Tommy case. I think Stephanos is the stronger root case. I mean, I will say that both of them have had 
not great seasons, but in a way, Casper has had a more impressive bad season. Than <laughs> so I feel like Rude's bad season has been more worthy of comment, where Sitsipas has yeah. really just coasted through the year. Sure. And like maybe there hasn't been enough scrutiny because, again, I think the, the Bedosa of it all has really created a sort of pop culture social shield around him. We really haven't gotten to analyze the results. We've also come to expect weirdness from him. We 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 forgive the strange results from Sitsipas because we believe inherently that he is capable of so much more and that he will eventually figure it out. We never expected, I think, collectively of Casper Rude. So when he is underperforming, I don't think we put the same gravitas on him. Meanwhile, he made the final of this tournament last year. I mean, he he's the one with the most to lose of this field because if he doesn't, much like Maria Sakari, does not qualify for this tournament, it's going to be curtains for that ranking because he had, I believe he won his group and made the finals. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of points potentially coming off the uh, the, the, the ranking for him, but then it's only going to become tougher as, as Holger Rune continues to win matches, a thing that he's doing now. That's that's great for him. How about this? His partner in crime at the end of last year, Felix, is 28 in the live rankings. That was... Who? Felix, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that was striking. But all right, to recap, my ranking of the field, and you tell me, too high, too low, just right as we re- as we recap here to end. Djokovic, one. Do you imagine? Yeah, just right. Yeah. Alcaraz, <laughs> too low. Two. Yeah, it's right. Medvedev, three. Yep. Sinner, four. Yes. Rublev, five. Again, yeah. Fine. Zverev, six. <sighs> yeah, correct. Tsitsipas, seven. Hmm. It still feels high, to be honest. Yeah. Fritz eight. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's about right. Runa nine. Well, now, now, now that he's on a one match winning streak, I would say too low. <laughs> Demon hour 10. Oh, come on. Girl. Hercats Her- 11, Paul 12, Rude 13. I, know, I mean, Hercats, are... I'll just say about Hercats, so frustrating. I mean, over the years, it's just it's some crazy. tremendous weapons physical gifts uh, just one of the nicest guys just the yeah. fact that he has not managed to cobble together you know a, a an easy top eight season given the field i mean and he's won a masters and he's still not even in the top eight i mean it's just a testament to how meh the year has been for him so that's that's a bummer i mean you talk about momentum carrying into next year you hope that winning shanghai will help him kickstart something next year because it's you know, yes, these guys are young, quote, quote unquote. But I mean, I'm I grew up at a time where 26 was old. So I mean, that's huh. that's uh, they're like you know, you gotta get together. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, again, that's my list. Those are the rankings as for where I handicap the field heading into the tour finals. Of course, Vienna, Basel, Paris will ultimately determine what that field actually looks like. Speaking of fields, we want to know what they look like. We know what the Elite Trophy field looks like, so that's where I want to end today's show. Didn't do anything on it yesterday. We can be quick with it here today, but we did get our first round of results from that Elite Trophy in Zhuhai. And again, the field... Players typically 9 through 25 in the rankings participate now. I believe it's four groups of three uh, is how they do it. The groups this year, group number one, Barbara Krachikova, Magda Lynette, Daria Kasakina. Krachikova, the win over Lynette in straight sets yesterday. You have a group of Haddad, Maya, Keys, and Garcia. Haddad, Maya, straight set win over Keys yesterday. You have... DK's go-to group, Ostapenko, Chinwen, Vekic. I mean, that is group DK. They haven't played yet. Julin, a win over Kudermatova, those two, and Samsonova in the Rose group. I love this event. I mean, again, it's the undercard event with a lot of spicy names included. And look, Maria Sakari probably would be playing this event. She ultimately gets called up to the tour finals as Karolina Muchova forced to pull out with a wrist injury. 
still, I I like this field, DK. It's best of the rest. What what are what are you looking for most? Any predictions you have for the week? So I love Zhuhai. I've gone yeah. three times. I went in 2016, 2017, and 2019. Um, love the Zhuhai Sheraton. Oh, oh my God. The, one of the nicest hotels I've ever been in. The breakfast buffet to die for. I tweeted um, a picture of it from 2019. Just little donuts and chocolate croissants. It was just, oh my God, amazing. I love the conditions. I love the court. It's a quick court. You know, Sabalenka won it in 2019. Really, you know, had her way with the field there in, in a way that was very impressive and and set her up for what ended up being a pretty good 2020. Um, I hate the format. I mean, it's just, it's a weird format. It's not one that I've ever really gotten on board with. At best, it's just a knockout draw, you know, with a fancy, you know, format. At worst, it's a weird one where you could potentially have all three players finish one and one, one win, one loss. And then you have like tiebreaker scenarios with sets and head to heads. And I don't know, I would rather it just be a regular round Robin the way that we're more used to, or just make it a knockout draw. I don't know. Like it just, it's always strange. There's so much effort to make these four groups. And yet it, I don't know what it really does because it's everyone plays two matches and then whoever gets most ideally it's a two and oh, and if not, you know, it ends up being a strange one-on-one situation. But yes, I do love I love the fact that Ostapenko, Chinwen, and Donna Vekic are in a group named after orchids. <laughs> it just really it feels like shade, to be honest. I mean, like, I don't know. They could have named them the Borgen Via group as they have in, in years past, but um they went for orchids. Like- I'd have probably traded Chinwen with Kasakina for balance. I just feel like there's so many big hitters in there. Like, if you switch Chin Wen into the Krechikova, Lynette, Chin Wen, and now it becomes Kasakina, Ostapenko, Vekic, that just feels more balanced to me. I like the inner and outer groups. Like, again, Jublin's had a very sneaky good hardcourt season. Top 30 hardcourt season, DK. Even maybe perhaps better. And for her to I mean, be I don't good- love that she's there, to be honest. I mean, the fact that they have to take yeah. a wild card to what is the best of the rest tournament. I, I mean, sure. I, I understand wanting to have representation at the tournament, but. Jung Chin Wen is there, so I don't know why yeah. they needed to have. I, I don't get it. You know, they, they used to do it in Sofia as well. They'd give the, sure. the wild cards to, to Svetlana Parankova. Hilarious, but maybe not the best in terms of fairness and whatever. But um, yeah, it's. I, I I'm interested to see what Krechkova does to finish the year. Uh, I'm not super enthused by the Camellia group, to be honest. I just feel like sure. you know whatever. I'm I'm curious to see that's who the will make antithesis it out of, that group. of the DK group. Camellia, yeah, they put together Orchid, so they had to give you Camellia as well. I, yeah, I mean, I'm also interested in the Rose group. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. well, when I say I'm interested in the Rose group, I'm interested specifically in Lyudmila Samsonova, who sure. I would imagine at this point the door has been swung open for because Kudermatova lost her first match to Julin, and now. You know, Samsonova just has to win her two matches to yeah. uh, I, she may even just have to win one to to qualify, depending on what uh, if she plays Julin next. I mean, that might just be enough to yeah. even to even the score. So it's a weird it's very weird, but it's it's, it's an also interesting tournament. It's also sorry. So tough, because if you lose your first match in straight sets, like you're really in trouble. You're basically and, out. Yeah, yeah. And I hate that part of three pl- person groups. I love round robin play. I just yeah. I hate when it's three. I like the idea of making it a yeah. unique format, but I the execution of it, and they've never really tinkered with it or made it better. So it's yeah. a kind of a bummer. I mean, I, I think a knockout for 12 would be kind of strange as well. So I I, I don't know. I, but then you sacrifice potentially two players. In this case, you'd lose, well, you'd lose Lynette and Julin. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not much. Or though, no, you'd have to lose four make, to make eight. I'm sorry. I can't no, count, ladies and gentlemen. No, been... or just do three groups of four. And then the fourth spot yeah. goes to whomever accumulates oh, the yeah, most Oh, yeah, the second games. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Whoever like wins yeah, the most games in their two collective matches that didn't win their group. Yeah. Or, that, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and so that way everyone gets the three. And, like... 
again, if Krachikova loses a set in the Azalea group, that's a disappointment. And she dusted Lynette in match number one. The Haddad Maya Keys match was weird because Madison Keys played two. She got broken at love serving at four or five in sets one and two. Like it just, I don't know. She, she, what a uh, weird matchup for Keys and Haddad Maya. One, one probably feels like I'm too good for this. And the other one feels like, what weird. am I doing here? Yeah, it was <laughs> just, what am I here to pour? It like, just, this is so weird. It was strange. That's a, that, I love that group with how weird it is. Like I'm just saying again, polar op. I mean, I like the Orchard group as well, but I think that is extraordinarily strange. Yeah. I could watch Ostapenko and Chinwen play five times this week and be satisfied. Would just be like, okay, that's the one matchup we're getting from Zhuhai. They're just going to play a, a set of five matches and winner gets the entire jackpot. <laughs> um, who does this matter most for? You say Samson. Like who – I mean, again, momentum coming out of an event like this. Can you actually take it? Maybe not, but let's have fun to wrap the show. Who who do you want to see win this the most and why? What do I what do I want to see win versus who I think would actually help? I mean, oh, either to, way, to say Ostapenko to say Ostapenko would give her momentum. Even Shin Wen, I don't know if that would give them because I feel like again for, for both of them, you know, Ostapenko, another player who probably thinks that she's too good for this. <laughs> it feels like you know my my level was better and it showed. To quote Ostapenko <laughs> from the grass court uh, season earlier this year, I mean, it's um, mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, she seems someone who's above momentum. You know, to say that she'll win this and then you know show up in January raring to go is is sort of a stretch. And I, I kind of think Samsonova. I mean, Krejko, even Krejkova, if she were to win this, I don't know. I mean, because then it must be a weird week for Krejkova for someone who started the year feeling like she was the fourth best player to be in the the B tier. You know, even to win it. I mean, I think to lose it would be bad, but I don't know if winning it would be. So, I mean, if she, I think for Krejcikova, the goal is to make the, the semis or the final. I don't know if winning it makes a difference. I just think she, if she can't lose to Kasakina, <laughs> if she can't lose the um, the round robin group. That would be pretty rough for her. But um, I, I'd go Chin Wen just because again, after she wins the title a couple weeks ago, she wins this as well. Now the big and at home, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think so, I think for her like celebrity status and you know her name recognition in China, that would be pretty massive for her to win it for sure. That'll be the last question. Then, by the way, I think. A Keys or Garcia win for the same reasons. It would just be a fascinating data point in what has been weird seasons for both of them. Garcia's played better of late, but again, what's the definitive Madison Keys result in a year where the numbers love Madison Keys? I think that's an interesting conversation we could have. Probably the win over Pagula, but my last question for you, did you like the Chin Wen singing performance? I've heard rumors that <laughs> Jung Chin Wen is like Good. sort of a low-key nerd. And it seems to be vindicated. I've heard rumors that she's very into like, you know, okay. Chinese anime. That, that okay. That's sort of like sure. her big, like her secret shame, as it were. And as someone who has, you know, a lot of plenty of niche interests myself, I'm not one to judge. So I think I like the fact that she was sort of down to clown in that moment. They said, here's the mic, sing your song. And she was like, hell yeah. I mean, I think we need that kind of energy on the WTA, especially given the fact that we are, we are, we're, Currently, there are so many introverts at the top of the game that, you know, to have more of that extroverted energy, I'm always on board for. So it was it was wild. I mean, it certainly was it was interesting the way it was promoted on social media as sort of not not a joke. It was sort of like the WTA tweeted like she's hitting all the right notes. And then you listen to it and it's like, oh, I don't know if we needed to promote it like that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch. I just couldn't. I wanted to like every five. I'm not big into cringe comedy. I find cringe comedy very tough. I just can't do it. I, I just, get embarrassed. Like, uh, like, oh, yeah, me too. I'm like, well, like, good for her. I'm, I'm, if she wanted to do it, I'm happy she did it. 
but I would I would hope so. I mean, I, I can't imagine any WTA player not doing something. I just think when you go through the next gen campaign, and I know they don't formally have one on the women's side, but if they take you to the tutorials or whatever the uh, the um, what's what's the week you uh, not initiation but, orientation uh, orientation. Thank you. WTA University, um, as it were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think at both WT and ATP University now they should play that her clip and Shapovalov in front of the Canada crowd and just say, look, this option is available to you, but this is what it looks like. And if you still want to do it, I'm not criticizing Chin Wen. I'm not. I'm just saying this See, is what I it want looks more like. of that energy on the ATP. I feel like we oh. have a lot of like clownery sometimes on the W or like yeah. where the WT players are being laughed at. And I feel like conversely on the ATP, we have a lot of this they're all Mer- they're all Meryl Streep and they're too serious and they're not ones to make jokes. I feel like the more we can have them be silly and fun, I'd like some more goofy karaoke from, from your Hoobie Hercules. But I, that's what I liked about the Chin Wen performance. I just like that she went for it. Like I was watching the body language. I couldn't watch with the sound. I just didn't want to know. Like she could have been exceptional. But can you imagine I was like, no, no, she's the voice of an angel. <laughs> well, here's the problem is she's a tier one prospect, as you know, DK. And by the way, t- who are the new tier ones is one of our December podcasts we'll get into, my friend. Clear your calendar. Um, but it's just like if she wasn't good – then that would have to linger over all of my subsequent analysis, and I just can't have that. It's going to be so. I, I mean, I kind of feel bad for her in the sense that, like, there's going to be. I mean, I think she's lucky in the sense that this happened at the time of year that it happened, because hopefully by next year she won't get like a ton of like smarmy questions in press about her singing. I just yeah. kind of hope that that. Hope well, we don't get that because it'll just be yeah. kind of embarrassing. I don't know. I, I don't want to embarrass her either. Like, it's going to be. It's a funny thing that she did, and I, I worry that like our press corps will kind of run it into the ground and be like, that time that you sang. That's what I'm saying. That's what I like. I just don't want it to. That's exactly it. I don't want it to be brought up again. I'm really happy she did it, (laughs) but like we can move on. We don't need it. Or I want it to be like a launch pad to something else. I don't want her to keep retelling the same story over and over again. I don't want the, the, the commentators to bring it up every match that she plays. Like it's, it's fun. Or I want it to be in the context of her being a great personality. I don't want it to be this goofy thing that she did and isn't she funny let's laugh at her like i just that's that's my one concern do you think djokovic should have ever stopped doing the impressions um see the thing is with comedy and it's why i find certain people funny and why i don't i take comedy very seriously it's all about punching up and so he was doing it at the appropriate time. I've I've ruined him, ladies and gentlemen. He's, he's doubled over laughing. The thing about comedy. comedy. The thing about comedy. It's all about punching up. You know, when he was a young guy, not ranked number one. Yeah, he's making fun of the top, making fun of Sharapova, who at the time had like three more slams than him, making fun of Federer, who at the time, I don't know, eight, ten slams more than him or something. And now that he's the number one, like for him to be, for him to be making fun of other players would be kind of gauche. Yeah. I mean, he probably should have come up with something. He could other... probably do it to Alcaraz now. Like, that's probably, he could do an Alcaraz and a doll, and then anyone who's retired. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I, I would rather see Alcaraz make fun of Djokovic. Yeah, I feel like that would true. be more funny. No, you're to right. Me. Look, I don't you know. I don't know. He's got to find another shtick. And I feel like maybe that's part of the problem is that Djokovic hasn't really found another thing, another com- comedic Whoa. niche over the years. It's been kind of tough. He's tried on a few different things, but yeah. I don't know. He needed to find, because he's got a great, you know, Certainly fans, he, fans find him very magnetic. He's got a personality that people enjoy. It's just, I don't know. He hasn't found that broad-based appeal that matches the the imitations. That's interesting. I didn't think of it like that, that he was, that's really where he peaked. 
in yeah. terms of his uh and then also he wasn't a threat to a lot of players or a lot of fandoms at the time either so that also probably helped people appreciate oh he's making fun of oh, that's funny um yeah I mean, that that's also sort of a lost art in general we don't really see players making fun of other players anymore maybe for the maybe for the best in some situations here's the thing about comedy <laughs> as the last comic standing it's good it's good. Yeah, it's one thing to do erotic impression, but it's like I'm also 17 and 2 against erotic or whatever the record is. So it's like, yeah, it's a little meter when you're also 17 and 2 against him. I mean, the Sharapova imitation was probably the the best. I mean, like we also over, you know, we we grade, we talk about grading players on a scale. I mean, that well, was Well, yeah. It was funny like it was it was legitimately funny, which being legitimately funny for a tennis player is like, boom, you're like, whoa. I know. Someone yeah. who can like actually make a joke and land a punchline. Yeah. Like, God bless Arena Sapolenka. She's still trying. Like, the timing is almost there. She's got like the, the, the syntax. It's just like emphasizing the right syllable. She's so close. And I, I root for her every time. The closest she came was this year against Rubakino, and she was like, "Oh, make sure it was the last one." Like that was, it was, oh, it was like, and they laughed. They laughed. She's funny. No, she. That's it's a great example because in a press conference when she's trying to land a punchline, not funny. But like, you, she's trying to be not funny. I mean, in a no press one thinks Arena Sabalenka is as funny as Arena Sabalenka. I mean, no. she is her <laughs> own like, she's her own best audience. Which, I would love as, as someone who also laughs at his own jokes, yeah. I again, no shade because I. I can't tell you how many interview audios I've listened back to and said, oh, my God, that player loved my joke. And all I can hear is myself laughing. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I really, I really overplayed my hand on this one. I, I, what I what was actually a light chuckle, I perceived as a guffaw because I was the That's one good. laughing That's at good. it. It's, it's brutal. That's good. Um, Again, as someone who loves yeah. comedy. No, but yeah, she's good, though. Sevlink is at her best when like you ask her something post-match press conference or someone says something and then she'll give you a little snappy retort afterwards like she you know she'll be like fuck you like you're wrong i don't ever want to play you gotta swear more that's my one note for her is i want more swearing because i feel like that really helps break up the can we let the record show it's never gonna be recorded in history but who is the what was the book like that she was like the shut the up or whatever it was oh right but who was the one who got her to swear in the press conference dk and asking about it was me <laughs> that maybe her be- last like on court like her uh, professional swearing it like, became a really- sto- it became a story and like someone wrote about it and i was like you're not going to credit the man who asked the question and got the response because that was day eight of the lynn's ostrava grind and it was like all right i have nothing we were we, we ran out of stuff i was her. like <laughs> i went into like hold percentage break percent i was like i got no more numbers for you <laughs> like i'm out of numbers I was, I was perched up there on my couch i was yeah. like i ran out of like interesting places to sit it it was yeah. a, whole, a whole thing. At that point, I was like, I think she's seen all my hats, too. I was like, I got nothing left to show. That was pre-hat era. <laughs> oh, yeah. Honestly, it might have been for me, too. Um, anyways, <laughs> that said, Elite Trophy Field, you're picking – who are you picking to win? Ooh, um – why not? I'll pick Samsonova. I feel like that's a that's a group she should get out of, and maybe she'll ride the momentum to the title. But Krejcikova up there is the top two uh, pick for me, and – who knows? Maybe well, Madison Keys already lost, so not Madison Keys. Maybe you know. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I like to hear it. Well, will you be writing about it this week at tennis.com? Any things we should be on the lookout for content-wise? Mm, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some social reacts. Again, Palabados is back at it at the gym. Wrote about that one. Wrote about the appeal from Simona Halep. Available on tennis.com and baseline. Flipped, not respectively. <laughs> I like it. One more case for why you should be the next speaker of the house. 
I mean, I feel like I'm fair. I mean, I feel like I I feel like I'm fairly convincing, and also I feel like the Speaker of the House is going to win based on vibes, and I feel like this is a very vibe-heavy <laughs> legislative session. So I feel like you you can keep your stats. I feel like my feelings don't care about your facts. So it's good. I'm trying to think if there are like five Republicans plus all two twelve Democrats that you could peel off. I'm like, I think hey, Bacon, I could get Nancy Mace to vote for me. Maybe one. I think Bacon <laughs> likes you. Honestly, you're telling me you and Lauren Boebert wouldn't have a great time out at the out somewhere together. <laughs> out, out, out of the theater. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Night, we'll wrap night it on there. the town. Yeah, leave that in. A shout out as always to you, DK, for taking the time to join us. A shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, as well. What sort of a job does he have to do, West? Uh, he does DK? a f- of an editing job. Oh, uh, he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out to him. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's Alex Demonar. <laughs> that was like it. We will see you all next time. Thank you as always, DK. Das Vidania.